This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Everything But the Girl is best known for their 90s hit Missing, which was remixed by Todd Terry. Everything But the Girl is out with their first album in 24 years. It's called Fuse. I caught up with the duos Ben Watt and Tracy Thorne to talk about the new record and making decisions that worked best for them rather than chasing fame and monetary gain. During everything but the girls' long hiatus, Thorne and Watt got married. Tracy spent years being a stay-at-home mom. She then wrote multiple autobiographical books, published columns, and put out some solo records. Ben has worked as a DJ, producer, club owner, and runs his own record label called Buzz and Fly. Then last year, they started making music together again. And, you know, it was Tracy who suggested at the end of it all, you know, maybe the time is now to, to come back together. You know, if not now, then when? We're not getting any younger. I think the time apart was good for us. You know, I think working together for a long time as we did and being a couple as well, our lives became quite enmeshed. And, you know, sometimes that's good and sometimes it's difficult. And you do need to hang on to a sense, you know, within any relationship of your own autonomy and your own um, identity. And I think the years we spend doing separate things I think it strengthened us because it gave each of us the chance then to explore things we wanted to do on our own, things that were perhaps more suited to us as individuals. And then when you come back together, you're not in competition with each other. You've got nothing that you're trying to prove to the other one. You know, I think we both had a strong feeling that the collaboration this time around was actually, there was something about it that was quite freeing. And I, I want to go back to the 90s for a second, because um, I find this kind of interesting. I understand that your career really started to take off after your song Missing was remixed. How would you describe what Everything But The Girl's career was like before that remix came out versus after? You know, we had a, a very successful career in, U- in the UK and around Europe in the 80s. You know, we were releasing gold albums and having singles in the top 40. It wasn't like, you know, we were kind of nobodies. But I do think, you know, there was a a shift in the musical landscape at the beginning of the 90s that, you know, we became very aware of, I think. You know, dance music began to really expand, I think, you know, having really been a kind of rave-based phenomenon around the early days of Acid House, it became much wider and more interesting, like a whole kind of delta of sounds came into came into music at that point. And I think we felt, you know, we needed to to adapt our sound, you know, and to to take what we could from it. And I think the opportunity to work I mean, both with Massive Attack, which we did, happened actually at the same time as the idea to to have Missing Remix by Todd Terry. I mean, these things were happening sort of 
you know, concurrently. And we just felt like it was a new way of, of, of putting our music together. Um, obviously, the Todd thing completely blew up against most people's expectations. I think a lot of people just thought Todd was going to deliver a really great mix for New York Clubland. Um, and it actually turned into a kind of global pop phenomenon a few months later. But no one really saw it coming. So I just think all these things, you know, were happening at a slow kind of steady pace. It, it, to us, it just felt like a slow transition from one era where we made music one way to a new era where we made it a different way. And I think any artist who lasts across decades inevitably changes their sound. You know, you only have to look at the Bee Gees or David Bowie or, you know, these people, if they last, through the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s. They adapt and they change and they absorb. Um, and I guess that's what, what we've done as well. Yeah. I was also really interested to learn that as your career was taking off more and more in the 90s, you had the opportunity to play a stadium tour with U2 in which you turned down. And shortly thereafter came the hiatus of Everything But The Girl. Tell me more about why you didn't want to go on that stadium tour and that decision to say no. It just wasn't ever really part of our game plan. I mean, as Ben's just said, you know, the, the musical decisions we were making didn't really have that as their goal at the end of them. Um, they weren't designed to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, in some respects, we had a, had a feeling that our career, you know, our sort of status as a band had got about as big as we were really comfortable with it being. Even our own gigs had, had got bigger. Um, you know, the audiences had got bigger and, in some respects, we felt something was lost as well as gained during that period. The, the demand for you to be a different kind of band on stage, you know, often what we did was quite subtle and quite understated, and it worked very well in a small venue. And the bigger the venues got, sometimes the, the harder that became. And when we looked at the idea of doing an actual stadium tour as the support act, you know, walking on in front of... A crowd of fans of, you know... Essentially a, very, a rock band. Yeah, very yeah. high-status um, rock band. We, In our minds, we just couldn't quite see how it worked. We kind of understood where you two were coming from, and we respected them. They were themselves trying to be more experimental at that stage musically, and I think they were challenging their own audiences with, you know, not being a kind of run-of-the-mill rock band. And I understood what they were doing, and I thought, that's kind of a cool move to ask us to support you, but I'm not sure. I want to, you know, be the one to walk out on that stage. <laughs> I don't want to be that be, guinea pig. <laughs> be this guinea pig support act for you. Um, and look, timing-wise, it just coincided with a point that I especially had reached at the end of the Walking Wounded album of feeling, you know, that a decision that I'd been moving closer towards anyway, which was really what I wanted to do next in my life, was have kids. Um just was my number one priority then. And so that didn't feel like the moment to me to go, oh, I know, instead of having kids, what I'd really like is for our career to get bigger and bigger and me be on tour forever. I kind of felt I actually wanted to take a little break. So 
It wasn't because of you two. I'm not. <laughs> we don't want to lay the blame at you two's door here for ending our career. It was just timing, you know. I think, and maybe it rang some bells with us that made us think this is where we've got to. This is where we could go next if that was really, really what we wanted. And it forced us to look ourselves in the mirror and go, "Well, is this really what you want?" And I think the answer was no, not really. Um, you know, perhaps what we want is something different. You know, you did tour a little bit after you had your kids. Yeah. And there was uh, this quote where you were explaining how you're on tour and like during the day, you're a mom taking care of these kids, which is like, you know, a very self-sacrificing, you know, act. And, you know, I have an 11 month old and I currently have boogers all over my shirt. You know, it's like not a very glamorous thing. Um, and then you go on stage and as you've described it, like you're kind of like this narcissistic pop star expected to be, you know, which are two very different things to be like a parent, self-sacrificing parent to a narcissistic pop star. And I thought that was a really interesting take on, you know, this idea of like, once you have kids trying to balance the two. Yeah, I found it difficult that, you know, I, I totally understand that there are people who manage that balance really successfully. And, you know, I respect and admire that. Also, I was in my mid-30s. You know, I wasn't at that stage of being a very young pop star. There's something about different stages of life, I think, where, again, as I say, you know, you have different priorities. Um, and maybe if I'd been younger and my energy level's higher, you know, I would have thought, look, come on, there's a way to make this work, do both these things at once. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I kind of wanted to focus on one thing at a time, I think, um, and yeah, you're right. We, you know, it's not like we quit recording as soon as we had kids. You know, we made the next album. We made Temperamental. Um, we toured around the UK taking the babies with us. And that was kind of eye opening. That, that was a lesson in what it could be like if we, if we tried to carry on. We did one New York gig where we left the kids behind in London. And I think I flew out on Concord to do one gig and flew back home. So. We thought that this isn't sustainable, is it? You can't <laughs> fly to and from the US um, on a nightly basis doing a tour. So, yeah, the decision made itself, really. Yeah. And I understand there are no plans to tour on this record, correct? No. I, I mean, that was a decision we took very early on. Yeah. And it was very liberating once we kind of admitted to each other that that's what we wanted to do. And we were able to focus on just making what we considered was a modern studio record by everything but the girl um, and we could just focus on trying to be fresh and do things we hadn't done before you know retain our signature sound as much as possible but just do something that felt new and I think one of the problems with touring is there's the logistical thing of you're always worried about how am I going to replicate this live even when you're recording the album and then I think you start to get beset with the worries of going on tour itself which is an act which takes you back into your past, you know, because your audience wants you to play the old stuff. They want you to play the hits. They want you to play it preferably as it was recorded, um, note for note, you know, and I find it quite restricting as, as a creative person. So once we just said no to that and just decided to make a contemporary record, it just felt very easy. You yeah. know, we just, it's a bit like we decided to make a film and we, you know, we weren't going to go on stage, but we were going to make you a great film. It, it's amazing that you're able to make these decisions, you know, from personally what, what you need in your lives. Um, you know, cause I feel like today, if you're, if you're a band trying to make 
a name for itself today, you have to tour. Like touring is where the money is. And so when I was just looking back at what you were able to do in your career and able to say no to you too, able to, you know, put out this record and say, I don't want to tour is amazing because those are decisions you want to make for yourself. But I also feel like so many bands that are trying to come into the world today, they they have to tour in order to make a living because you don't really have CD sales anymore. They're streaming from a financial standpoint. Were you able to make those decisions like saying no to you two, like saying no to this tour because so much of your catalog came out in that era where people purchase CDs? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, we're, we're in a luxurious position. We don't take that for granted at all. It's a luxury that we've been able to make decisions that suit us and, you know, have worked for us in our lives. You know, we are extremely lucky. Um, you know, we've been very success- successful over the years. And as you say, we were lucky enough to make our records in an era when people bought records mm. um, and you could make, you know, a really decent living as, as a recording artist. Mm. And I totally know how difficult that is now. I'm not sure how much money there is even to be made from young bands playing live nowadays. I mean, there's a there's a, a threshold, I guess, that once you cross, you know, maybe you're earning some more money. And I appreciate that if you get onto the circuit of doing the big festivals and stuff that, you know, those can at least bring an income, which is, you know, not guaranteed anywhere else anymore within music. So yeah, look, we're lucky. We're, you know, we Mm. did well, we did well in an era when, you know, that gave us the freedom, you know, to be able to make decisions and choices about, you know, what we do as artists. Mm. I mean, we lived in London and owned our own house, you know, before, missing yeah you know we wow yeah we we had made you know as i said you know five six gold albums in the 80s early 90s you know and that was able to set yeah. us up for those days you could buy property <laughs> yeah. in london yeah so. yeah yeah go figure that was my conversation with tracy thorne and ben watt of everything but the girl the first album in 24 years called Fuse was released in April. I need a thicker skin. This pain keeps getting in. Tell me what to do. Cause I've always listened to you. And I'm here at your door. And I've been here before. Tell me what to do. Nothing works without you. That was Sound and Vision. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.